Well, good morning again. It's great to be here. Um, enjoy hearing you sing so much. It's uh, certainly a, a worshipful time, and um, lifting our voices up together is, is an important aspect of our worship, and so I trust it's been a blessing to you as it has been to me. We're going to be back in the book of Colossians this morning, and so if you would please take your Bibles, trust that you have them with you. I think it's important that you do bring a Bible to church. I, I know that using apps and things of that nature is quite popular today, but I want to encourage you to have a written copy of God's Word. I think it's important for young people in the church to see the saints of God engaged with the written manuscript rather than scrolling through their phone. Um, I think it sends a different kind of message, and so I want to encourage you in that way. Colossians chapter 3, we've been here for a while, of course, and that's okay. Um, we're going to be looking at verse 10. Again today, I want to take the first is teaching us here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's quite important, and it's something that, that we need to, to have our, our minds wrapped around, this issue of knowledge, and of course, this creation of the new man and our being robed and clothed in the new man is of great significance and import to Paul and should be to us since he was writing it based upon the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Before we get into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. We are so grateful that you um, care for us and that we can approach you and that you don't cast us out and that you never turn away your, your hearing of us, that in your great grace and mercy you extend to us um, such great compassion and kindness um, and grace, um, even, even in the context of our sinfulness and even when we sin, you are patient and long-suffering with us, and we thank you for that. Thank you for being so kind, the, the gracious Father. Thank you for providing to us Jesus Christ and, and, and placing us in him so that we can rest in his finished work, and we rejoice that we are known by you through him. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand the word today, that we would comprehend the content of your word. You have graciously given it to us and we should treasure it and keep it and put it into our hearts and, and live by it and, to re and rejoice in it and to indeed love it very, very much. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us today from wandering minds and thoughts, from sleepiness, from cares and concerns about the world. Um, thank you, Lord, for uh, providing to us the things that we need to take care of this building and for providentially directing things that we need to us. We are rejoicing that you take care of us in such a very um, minute way. Um, we thank you for this great day that you've given to us. Thank you for this building and for uh, the comfort that it provides to us to meet. And we pray that you would be pleased with our worship this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter, sorry, Colossians chapter 3, Paul, of course, is building upon the doctrine, the theology that he has established in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Colossians is a very Christ-centered epistle, um, and he's doing that intentionally uh, to make certain that he is correcting the error of the false teacher who would have the Colossian believers place their faith um, in their performance and in their legalism and in their ritualism and in their spiritism rather than in Jesus Christ. Christ is the object of our faith. 
in all regard, justification, sanctification, and we look forward to our glorification with him. And so this is Paul's driving point. And of course, in verse 10, we're going to see today that Paul emphasizes the manifestation of this new nature and the significance of it. And I want to make certain that we are fully grasping the meaning of this. It's important for us to understand, as the redeemed of God, the amazing transformation that has been wrought in us as it encompasses both God's creative intention and design and also has eschatological significance. That is, significance in regards to dwelling and being in the kingdom of Christ and how we view the future. God has fitted people. We are his workmanship, and so he has created good works, and he's made people then that will carry those things out in response to his saving grace in their life. Last week, I made a comment that I want to clarify with regard to the work work of sanctification and its source. Certainly, I would hold to the position that sanctification is holy of God. It is monergistic. That's one of my favorite words. You can even buy a t-shirt that says, I'm a monergist. Perhaps we should sell those on the book table. I, I don't know. Maybe we will. But nonetheless, sanctification is wholly the work of God. It's through Jesus Christ, our faith in Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I commented that in some context it could be synergistic, and I certainly did not mean to imply that somehow we are controlling it or that we are responsible in some way for it. We are not passive, however. My, my comment in that regard was to make certain that you were not engaged in bumper sticker theology that says, let go and let God. Um, we don't engage in that type of mindset. That's a, kind of a form of of a, of a Wesleyan, Arminian theology that certainly I find repulsive and repugnant and would never embrace, and I want to make certain that you are not doing that either. What's significant to me is that all of this doctrine, these indicatives, are followed by significant imperatives, things that flow out of one who has been redeemed and is in living in Christ. And so, um, it certainly is, is not a synergistic work in the context that we are controlling something, but we are certainly responding to by and through the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do so, to live out the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is always the object of our faith. We do not faith even in our faith. Do you understand that? Shall I say it again? You do not faith in your faith. Faith is not the object Jesus Christ is always the object. The tendency is that we do that. We faith in our faith or we faith in our faithfulness. And so we engage in a lot of different things. You may call them Christian disciplines. You can call them all sorts of different things. But ultimately, if the object of your faith and what sustains you in your sanctification is not Jesus Christ, then your sanctification is not biblical. And so... I want to make certain that we're clear about that. Now, again, we are not passive. We are not just mind-numbed robots who are just mindlessly engaged in something. We are indeed people who are indeed called to live out the reality of our faith. We'll see that in verse 12, and where Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I'll have more to say about this as we get into verse 12 and lay a foundation for a better understanding of what some call progressive sanctification. I'm not sure I'm 
real keen on that title, but it's one that's often used. It's used in reform circles as well, and we've seen it in Transforming Grace. We've seen it in the Gospel according, or the Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges, um, and it certainly speaks to the idea of a growing in Christ um, as opposed to uh, not really demonstrating the reality of your conversion. And so, um, certainly, um, the Lord is at work, and we give him all the glory in that regard. So, chapter 3, verse 10. Now, let's go back to verse 9. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self, and that word self really is more accurately translated man. You laid, laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So what I want to do today is to make certain that we're grasping the significance of this picture that Paul is painting of this robing, this clothing oneself in the new man. This is an act of God. And so Paul here is communicating the amazing, miraculous transformation that occurs in the new birth. This is what it means to be born again. When Christ said to Nicodemus that you must be born again, this is what he was speaking of. You must be clothed, you must be created anew in in Christ. You have to be clothed in that new nature, if you will. And this is the picture that Paul is painting for us. Now, this is important because the word knowledge is connected to what the new man does. And this is an important theme for Paul. We know this from the earlier references that he has made to knowledge, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and attempting to thwart the teachings of the false teacher, who is taking people's eyes off of Christ and causing them to focus on themselves. And so, looking at this verse again at verse 10, we understand what has taken place. We understand that we are new creation in Jesus Christ. And so he tells us to be engaged in certain behaviors and patterns of behavior that come out of this new nature. We no longer lie to one another because we are new creation in Christ Jesus. One of the things that, that this new man does is he stops lying. He mortifies sins. He lives in the power of the Spirit, the ideas of mortification and vivification that we have talked about. And so in verse 10, Paul says, and have put on the new man who is being, or which is being, renewed to a full or true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so what we understand is this. Believers have stripped off the clothes of the old sinful man and they have now been clothed with the new man. Now, that's significant, and I want to make certain that you're understanding that. If you don't grasp that, you're going to fall into a lot of error. And this new man language that Paul uses here indicates our inauguration, the new creation relationship with God. We have been brought into a different context. We are now new creation, and we have a relationship with God based upon His grace and His mercy and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not on what we are doing, not upon the things that the false teacher was telling them in chapter 2, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, those type of things, the law that he was bringing back in, that's significant. And so he's teasing out this important distinction. And for you and I to realize the reality of what it means to be new creation in Jesus Christ, we need to grasp the significance of the fact that we have been radically changed. We have been recreated 
by God. Now, that's a big deal. You have been made completely new and different. While you're still robed and you're still, you're still clothed in this fallen flesh, you now have the Spirit dwelling within you that enables you to live out the reality of this new creation. Just as fallen man lives out the reality of his bondage to that nature, so too we then live out the reality of the newness that's been given to us by God in and through our relationship with Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's significant is this. The stripping of, off of the old man and the clothing with the new man has occurred definitively in the past and is the reason for no longer our life being characterized by sin. What, what do the unregenerate do? Their lives are characterized by sin. They love their sin. They do not love Christ. They hate Christ. And they live the reality of that in the way that they act, in the way that they think. We see that in the world today. We see people living out the full-orbed nonsense of their fallenness. People rejecting God's authority. People living in a context where they are the authority to themselves. There is no authority. There is no truth. Truth cannot be known. We can't even define the word woman anymore. But in the context of the new nature, I have been made new. My mind has been changed. I have been given a new mindset that now drives me into understanding what is pleasing to the Lord. I am a new creation, and in that new creation, I am able to ultimately fulfill the creation mandate of God, bearing in mind that the creation mandate has not been lifted. It still exists to be fruitful and to multiply. We see that language here in Colossians chapter 1, and Paul reaches back into the book of Genesis to drive home the significance of the difference between the unregenerate and the redeemed. And what I want to make certain, too, is this. We can't, sometimes people fall into the trap when they read these passages in verse 9 and verse 10 that this is something that is continuously happening. This idea of laying aside and putting on is something that we're doing kind of randomly throughout the course of our lives, and it makes it seem as if it's something that we're in charge of. Paul here is, is, is using language that is specifically intended to demonstrate to us that the robing is something that God is doing. If you will, he is the sovereign tailor who fits us with the new nature. Perhaps a new word for you, this type of imagery, this language is sartorial in nature. That means it speaks to the idea of being, of, of being fitted. If you go to a tailor and have a new suit made or a dress made, that tailor measures you and fits you and, and, and makes all sorts of adjustments and designs and fashions that article of clothing to fit you perfectly, and then you are then conformed into that clothing. That's exactly the picture that Paul is painting here. So I want to make clear, you are not in a continuous state of robing and disrobing. It's not like on Friday night you say to your wife, hey honey, I'm going to run upstairs and put on the old man and we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. It's not that at all. No, we are, we are new creation. We have been changed and so you're not in this constant state. And, and, and a lot of people think this way. 
that this is something that they are doing, that they're engaged in. No, you are either one or the other, and when God changes you and robes you in this new nature, that is permanent. It doesn't come and go. You don't come and go out of this new clothing. If you are, then that means one could lose their salvation ultimately. Now, this reference here by Paul to the clothing, this tailoring, sartorial language that he uses in verses 9 and 10 is an allusion to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. And, and we're going to look at this and, and consider what's here. So, Paul is, is reaching back into the book of Genesis to lay the foundation for the picture of the transformation that is taking place. Now, here's something that's important. When Paul, Paul understands who his audience is, now, bearing in mind that the believers in Colossae did not have a copy of the New Testament. We all understand that, right? They, they were relying upon the Old Testament. That's what they had been taught. That's what would have been read to them in the synagogues. This is a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. This is what Epaphras would have been preaching from, would have been the Old Testament primarily. Um, this, is, this is the picture that we need to keep in mind. You and I oftentimes become detached from the Old Testament to our detriment. Now, I know Andy Stanley says that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, but we don't because in the Old Testament, there are pictures and images that make our salvation even clearer and more significant in terms of our understanding. And so Paul, if you recall in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about how the gospel was multiplying and it was fruitful in the context of its propagation and creation of believers in fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. Ultimately, the idea with Adam is that Adam would have a progeny that would ultimately continue to reflect and multiply and be fruitful in the context of the covenant of works, but that failed. But in the context of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, continues and has perfectly fulfilled that mandate as he continues to propagate and to create, being fruitful and multiplying those who are of him, the believers, right? Us. And so for Paul, this is significant. He wants to make certain his, his readers would have understand this allusion to clothing because it's something in the Old Testament that is often used. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, we are told this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Loin coverings. So here in Genesis 3, 7, we are told that Adam and Eve tried to cover their sinful nakedness by their own autonomous efforts directly after their sin. It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. On the other hand, in an apparent expression of their beginning restoration to life with God after the fall, 
Genesis 3.21 says this. Look at this. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I'm going to tell you what. This is an amazing, beautiful picture. Now, let's not forget the context of the garden. In the garden, you have perfection. You have holiness, righteousness. Adam and God walk together in the cool of the evening. I believe that to be a manifestation of Jesus Christ. God is spirit, and, and if he's walking with Adam, there is a context in which this is, the, this is just as Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state manifested to Adam. And so they walk together in the cool of the evening. They have this sweet fellowship. They are, bound, they are, they are, they are connected in that way. It's interesting that there's this friendly picture that we have of, of Adam and God in the garden. There's fellowship, there's camaraderie, there is a common way of thinking and interacting with each other, but that is broken by sin. They are in harmony and union, but after there is sin, that harmony and union is broken. Something then has to change, and that change must occur in Adam, and that change has to be wrought by something other than Adam because Adam cannot do it. Now, notice that Adam makes an effort. So in verse 7, he tries to do something that he thinks is going to be sufficient to make him acceptable to God. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, look what happens, though, in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Now, he has already sown for himself the fig leaves. He's got covering, but he knows it's inadequate. So I hid myself. And so we have this picture of the reality of one nature versus the other. There's now a problem. Sin has brought a barrier between God and man. God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot entertain sin in that context. And ultimately, that's why Adam is cast from the garden. But with regard to this idea of the transformation, this changing, this robing, if you will, it's significant. Genesis 3.21 tells me this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The, the clear implication is that their, fruit, their first self-made suit of clothes was removed and replaced by divinely handmade clothing, indicating that the handmade clothing was associated with their alienated condition and sinful shame. That's important. Why, why do you have to be reclothed or clothed anew in Colossians 9 and 10? Why is God doing that? Well, he must do it because in your fallenness, in the bondage to your old man nature, you cannot be in fellowship or union with Christ. Something has to change about you. You cannot make that change. God must do it just as he did in the garden. Adam and Eve's closing was insufficient to be reconciled to God. 
that Adam's and Eve's loin coverings were not proper attire to wear in God's holy presence is clear from the fact that while wearing them, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God and still considered themselves what? Naked. Naked. And so look at this. Let's ponder the magnitude and the wonder because this is what you and I are, are, are experiencing in the context of our salvation. This is what it means to be clothed in the new man. This is the picture that Paul and his readers, his listeners, would have understood reaching back into this imagery of the Old Testament that would have been very clear in the heads of the people in Colossae, especially his Jewish congregants. And so look at verse 21 of chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Notice what God did. First of all, God made the garments. God made the garments. And he made them out of something that was different from what Adam and Eve had chosen. Because in order for a garment to be made of skin, an animal had to be killed. There had to be, a, there had to be some other sacrifice in order to obtain the skin by which Adam and Eve would be then clothed. This, this is remarkable. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, that is exactly what Paul is communicating to you and me. He wants us to understand the magnitude and the wonder of God's work that's expressed very vividly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And so to better understand Colossians 3, 9, and 10, I reach back into the Old Testament. I use Scripture to explain Scripture, and I see exactly what it is that God is doing for me. So in the garden, what Adam and Eve were wholly inadequate. It was insufficient to allow them to be in God's presence. And so the Lord God made the garments. What an unbelievable picture. He finds the animal, he takes the animal, the animal is killed, the skin is prepared, and he fashions it into clothing, proper attire for Adam and his wife. And, it, and he doesn't make it and then just throw it at Adam and Eve while they're hiding behind the bush and say, put that on. He physically clothes them. Look at this. Verse 21 again. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What a loving, gracious act on his part, considering what had just transpired. Here you have Adam and Eve in, 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 in terror. Now, now, there's something significant about the fact that Adam and Eve are hiding from God. When just the day before, or perhaps hours before, they were walking with him in the cool of the evening, the cool of the afternoon. There had been fellowship, and that fellowship was now broken by sin. Yet God, in his grace and his mercy, seeks them out. He finds them. He hears them. And he responds to their dire condition by lovingly providing to them what they need in order to be in his presence, in order to be before him, if you will. 
He finds the animal. He makes the clothing, and it's fitted perfectly for them. And he then clothes them. Can you imagine that? What a loving and gracious God that is. These people had just rejected him. They had provided everything possibly he could for them. He gave them one rule to follow, and they broke it. God would have been absolutely righteous and correct to have smitten both of them right then and there, and he could have. Yet in his grace and in his mercy, he lovingly takes something else to bear their shame, their guilt, if you will, and he covers them with it. He takes something that is innocent and covers that which is guilty. That's exactly what he does for you and me. And so when Paul says to me and to you in Colossians chapter 3, that you have been robed in this new man. This is exactly the picture that Paul wants you to have in your mind. He wants you to see the significance of it in the same manner and in the same way that Adam and Eve would have understood that God was being gracious to them in this context. To, go, to, to clothe someone speaks of intimacy. You've, you've done that. You've cared for somebody who was, who was ill. You've, you've clothed the child. That's not something that you do from across the room. That's something that you do with a child sitting on your lap or with someone who was ill leaning over and holding them and embracing them and pulling the clothes over them and making sure that they're buttoned and that their things are tied up. That's exactly the picture. That's what God did when he saved you. He reached down and he took the righteousness of Christ, the innocent, suffering servant, and he reached down and he embraced you and he clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he made you a new person in that context, clothing you and fitting you to serve him and to love him and to know him in all of his fullness and glory. He did that for you. You did not do that. You could not do it. You would not do it. Just like Adam and Eve tried. They tried to fashion something. They tried to put together something. Lord, Lord, look what we did. Look what we made. Is it not enough? Yet they still hid. They were still naked. God finds them, and he clothes them, and he prepares them, and he fits them for service to him. Now, I know there is much that yet's to come, yet before this, we have the proto-gospel in 3.15. He's, he's communicating to him. He's going to give them examples then of the gospel that he communicates in verse 15 by doing what he does in 21. Verse 21 is an explanation of the meaning of the gospel, the proto-gospel that's explained. It's beginning to be set forth in verse 15. There will be one who will come, and he will conquer sin. And he will provide to you a covering. And he will make you a new creation in Jesus Christ. So, when I look at this, I must, I must make certain 
that the magnitude and the wonder of the transformation that is taking place is communicated by Paul in verses 9 and 10 is appreciated because it goes to the issue of the knowledge then that he talks about in verse 10. This knowledge then is about God. It is of God. It is what God has done for me in Christ. This is why Paul does what he does in Colossians 1, 9, and 10 when he tells the Colossian believers that he is praying for them that their understanding of these things would increase because he understands that as you and I grasp the significance of the transformation that is taking place when God saves somebody, that that then enables us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live for him to live out the reality of this, this new transformation, this new clothing, this new nature that is given to us. This is remarkable. This is beautiful beyond almost comprehension. Adam and Eve, try as they might, they even covered their loins. They, there was nothing that was sufficient. It was wholly inadequate. And so, in verse 10, Paul communicates the wonderful truth that the Colossian believers have laid aside the clothes of the first Adam, the old man, in which neither Adam nor they could come into God's presence, and that they have now been clothed with the last Adam, the new man, in whom they are in the process of being renewed. This is why Paul says what he does in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, and having put on the new man, which is being renewed, renovated, to a full, true knowledge according to the image of the one God who created him. I'm going to tell you what. Well, you've got to get your heads around this. Because when you do, it is fully transformative. You begin to see and understand and grasp the significance of Scripture as it speaks to the wonders and the magnitude and the overwhelming significance of your salvation. When Christ said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he was saying to him, I must clothe you. I must clothe you. Now I wonder... And someday in heaven, I'm going to ask him, Nicodemus, did you think about Genesis chapter 3 when Christ said that to you? Perhaps he did. Being the Jewish, being the scholar of the Old Testament that he was, he was the teacher. He was the one. No one would have been smarter than Nicodemus. So, by this new clothing being put on them, there has begun then the restoration to life with God, which will be ultimately consummated in glory. And so Paul uses this Genesis 3 clothing tailoring language in an a, in a analogous way for our salvation, for our new clothes, the new clothes with which Adam himself was clothed to indicate his restored relationship with God are analogous of Christians being clothed with the new clothes of the last Adam. That's exactly what's going on. 
So when I'm clothed, I'm made fit. I am prepared for something. God doesn't do this just to leave you to yourself. God doesn't do this just to make you happy. God doesn't do this just to give you meaning or significance. God doesn't do this so you can love yourself. God doesn't do this so you can have your best life now. God does not do this so you can have the best job that you can ever imagine. God does not do this to spare you from suffering. God does not do this for any other reason to give himself glory and to fit you for service to him. Pure and simple. That's, why we, that's what we see then as this chapter plays out. What this ultimately does is it transforms us and changes us into people who then live out the creation mandate. We then become what Adam was supposed to be in his progeny, and we propagate the gospel, we multiply, we are fruitful in the context of the creation mandate, giving God the glory as he builds his kingdom and, and creates his new people who have been fitted and prepared for good works before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. So what happens? You know, God creates and he makes these works and then he makes people to do them. That's ultimately the picture that we have. So, what is the implication then of verses 9 and 10? The implications are this. One is either in the position of the old, fallen Adam, the corporate embodiment of unregenerate humanity, or in the new, resurrected, last Adam, the corporate embodiment of the new humanity. Do you see this? Paul's reference to man in these verses can be seen either individualistically or corporately. Paul here is looking to the idea of the corporate manifestation and also the individual manifestation of one's newness in Christ, the embodiment of the new humanity, which will result in people being engaged ethically with each other in a different way than they were before. That's why in verse 5, he tells me to mortify sin. That's why he's in He's exhorting me to live in the context of vivification, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, relying in faith upon the finished work of Christ, making Christ the object of my faith at all times, energized by that, joyful in the reality of that. So the new life of believers exists solely in union with Christ. Keep in mind, what is significant about this is that the old man has been abolished and the new man has taken his place. The new man has taken his place. The idea of putting on and putting off is not an imperative. It's not something that we are constantly engaged in. You're not one day the old man and the next day the new man and one day or one hour the new man and the next minute the old man. That's not how it works. And in spite of so much wrong teaching on this, God's word is clear. God, when he clothes you, keeps you in the clothes. That's called perseverance. Right? You're not like a toddler wandering around the house with your pants off and your shirt on. Constantly taking your shoes off or your socks. <laughs> like a little kid does. No, 
Once God clothes you, you're clothed. It's permanent. It does not change in that way. So this picture that Paul paints is to give us the, the, the reality of what has happened in the past. Because God has done this, because God has worked this, you then are going to be like this. So, on the basis of this new clothing of the new man being clothed in the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, Paul exhorts the Colossian believers to stop being identified with the traits of the former life in the old Adam, but to be characterized, rather, by those of the life in the last Adam. The reason Paul commands his readers to lay aside sinful traits, as we saw in verse 8, is because God has already and decisively laid aside their old unregenerate man and put on the new recreated man, which gives them power to obey his commands to act in obedience, which we want to do out of gratitude, out of the overwhelming sense of wonder that God did for me what he did for Adam and Eve, yet he used Jesus Christ, not an animal. Now, on the basis then that believers are new, new men, new man, breaking the power of sin from the old world, these new people, this new humanity, are given commands. The indicative of the new creation must precede the imperative to act as new creation. Do you understand this? The indicative of the new creation, the fact of it, the doctrine of it, if you will, must come first. It precedes the imperative. God can't make, or God would not ask you to do what you could not possibly do in the context of, of trying to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. You're fallen. You're, you're outside of His creative mandate and purpose, if you will. The indicative of the new creation must precede the imperative to act as new creation. So, this is why we say then that Sanctification is monergistic. As God clothes us in this new attire, we then begin to live out the reality of that, enabled by the Holy Spirit to do things that are pleasing to the Lord, to lovingly obey Him, to do, as Paul will say in the balance of this chapter, which are full of imperatives. Husband loves your wife. Wife, submit to your husband. Get along with your employer. Masters, be kind to your slaves. Do things that are kind and gentle with your neighbor and things of that nature. Be compassionate towards each other in the church. Encourage each other with songs and hymns and all those things. These are the things that the new people of God do. They do them and willingly do them. They want to do them. Now, we always don't do them perfectly. We still sin. We are still in the flesh, if you will, but it does not control us as it did when we were old men the old man. Now, so, without the power of the new creation, there is absolutely no ability to obey God and please Him. None. Now, a lot of people struggle with that. You know, you tell your neighbor, your unsaved neighbor, well, just pray about it. Pray about what? 
They're going through some issue, some problem. Well, let's pray about it. Wait a minute. There, how's that work? It doesn't. They don't love Christ. They hate him. They are in darkness. They are not light. They have not been made new. They have not been fitted. They have not been clothed in the new nature. You try to give them advice based upon the scripture. They come to you with some problem with their kids or with their marriage, and you talk to them about what the Bible says. Well, you know, if you're to love your wife more, and if your wife would submit to you more, and you know, you know, do this with your kids and read some verses to them, that doesn't, that's not going to do anything, friend. You have to tell them about Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a self-help book for just whoever happens to pick it up. It tells you about Jesus Christ and your desperate need for a Savior. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And so, without the power of the new creation, there's no ability to obey God and please Him. The believer's ethical conduct flows out of the indicative reality of their new identity. And so Paul exhorts the Colossians to act in accord with the new man that they have donned as a new garment that God has clothed them with. That's what Paul is doing. So, friend, do you know Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to fashion for yourself fig leaves in hopes that God will somehow accept that? He won't. He can't. He never will. You must be fitted by God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which comes only to you in faith. In faith. How often we have tried, how often we go to the fig leaves to make for ourselves something that we hope will be good enough. You're still naked. You're still clothed in the old man. But Jesus Christ will clothe you anew. All who call upon my name shall be saved, shall be reclothed, shall be fitted for new clothes, shall be given the new man. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Do you now appreciate what God has done for you? Do you see the picture that has been painted of the wonder of your salvation, the magnitude of it, the glory of it? He reached down and he personally clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He killed his son, took his righteousness, gave it to you, and lovingly embraced you. That picture of being clothed is overwhelming. That's exactly what he did. He did it. You didn't. Praise his name. Lord, we love you. Thank you for clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us this new suit of clothes, for placing us in Christ. We pray now that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit to live out the reality of this transformation and this conversion. In our praise to you and the way we interact, making Christ the object and as we make him the object, reaching out to others with the message of the gospel and telling them of the good news. Give us a burden for the lost. 
Help us to rejoice in our salvation, and may our joy be renewed every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.